And we're live with our 224th episode of Absolute AppSec. I'm Ken Johnson at CK Tricky on X, uh, joined by my co-host Seth Law at Seth Law on X. Seth, say hi. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode. We're super excited today to have Jeevan on with us. We'll be getting into it with him shortly. Um, it's been a few years since we've chatted face-to-face with Jeevan, at least on the podcast. We have seen him around in other places. Uh, but his insight, and I, I, I'm just really excited to have him back on the show to talk through everything he's been doing since the last time we had an update. Um, on top of that, uh, we don't actually have a lot going on. It is Q4 in my world. I think in you know everybody's world in the security industry right now. So we're all like uh, hanging on by tooth and nail, at least is what it feels like to me. Um, but we are planning out Q1 as far as travel goes, training and other things. Um, it looks like we will be back at KernelCon teaching. Um, at least we're submitting to teach there again. We've been talking to the organizers there. Um, and a few other places. Uh, if you are attending a conference and would like to see us submit, or you know we haven't been there in a while, I know um, you know the Northeast, whether that's DC and other places, is on our list. Uh, we'll be looking at B sides events and other things to actually go and train. Um, let us know uh, there, um, because I, I mean it, it's really up to the the listeners where the interest is as to where we actually offer the course or even just go speak, right? Um, Outside of that, um, I did want to give a shout out to our sponsor, Redpoint Security. Uh, Redpoint specializes in code security for coders, bolstered by years of experience testing applications, conducting secure code reviews against all types of applications, including web, mobile, AI, and Web3. It also offers training to help ground your teams in better security practices across the development lifecycle. So check out redpointsecurity.com for more information and put your company on a path to better security. Um, yeah, Ken, I think that's everything from me. Do you have any updates as far as, I, I know you've been traveling a fair bit more than I have from a conference circuit perspective. Um, you have any other places you're going to be upcoming? Thankfully, no. I am so happy to say no. No, I am not traveling anywhere. And that is amazing. <laughs> At least for the next yeah. few months, I don't have a single thing planned. So super stoked. But yeah, I had just come back from, um, you know, last con, like you mentioned, AppSec, yeah. uh, <laughs> I don't know, Global DC, something like that. Uh, <laughs> where, where I got to see Jivon and we had a good talk. And one of the topics we're going to talk about today, uh, we had a good chat about um, yeah, yeah, near and dear to my heart for sure. So, uh, but no, actually, I, I think the one thing that, because I don't think we've had a podcast uh, with me on anyways. And then thank you, Stefan, for filling in last week. Um, but uh yeah, I don't think we recap too much about AppSec DC. I think the the one no. uh, major takeaway I had uh, was everyone in ASPM now. It seems <laughs> there's a, there was I, I was looking at the uh, exhibition ground floor and uh, there were a ton of uh, ASPM uh, vendors out there, more than I really had expected. Um, so that was interesting. That seems to be like the way people are moving towards. I also saw saw obviously a lot of. Uh, AI mentioned. And then um, uh, one uh, highlight from the talks uh, was Jeremy Long um, and his talk on smuggling in uh, malicious code via strings in uh, unit tests. Pretty cool. Pretty neat. Um, obviously not something your, your scanners are set up to do. So uh, yeah, that's my recap in a nutshell. It was pretty cool. Cool. Well, I wasn't there at all, so we'll ask Jeevan. That'll be the first thing. I mean, you know, well, you can plug your own talk, talk, obviously. Yeah, obviously, <laughs> you had the best talk. But you know, what were your takeaways from Global AppSec DC? Yeah, it's the first time I went in some time. Um, uh, COVID happened, and being on the West Coast, it's easier for me to go to uh, Global AppSec in uh, SF instead of DC. But it was it was great. Um, it was great to see that the uh, the conference had grown a lot couldn't believe how many actual vendors there were as well like i remember way back when there were just only a handful but there's so many in this space now uh it was nice to see that definitely a lot of aspm vendors that i i was gonna say ai was the um one that uh, i saw everywhere there's like ai vendors everywhere it's gonna be very very competitive in that space which is gonna be great for us uh as consumers um a lot of great talks um 
nice to see so many AppSec influencers uh, out there as well. I got to spend time with uh, a few of them picking, the, picking their minds. So yeah, I really enjoyed this one. It was just nice to just be back at an AppSec conference in itself. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I was sad to miss it, even though like, yeah, the previous like two weeks had been nothing but travel. I think, you know, I, we saw each other and, you know, and yeah, in Austin and then like between Austin a couple of times and the local conference, St. Con here, it was just, I, yeah. DC, I'm with you, right? Like being further West Coast, DC is a slog. And uh, I was like, yeah, I'm going to miss it this year. Uh, but I'm sure we'll we'll swing back around to it. I, I, I mean, number one, it did feel like I, you know, it's been a while since I've had FOMO from an AppSec conference, right? Like, you know, um, you know, what, what was that, that fake one that was in Hawaii or something? <laughs> yeah. Once upon a time. Whatever. Yeah. Once upon a time. Yeah. Um, but it did feel like it, um, a lot of people were there and there was some good, like good vibes coming from it. Right. As far as like research and like AS, ASPM, um, I, I mean, I guess we should define that for people that haven't heard that term, right? Like application security posture management, right? That's what we're looking at. Um, so uh, tools like that were just dependency analysis or whatever be, before are now branching out and they're covering more things. And it's now a, you know, a posture tool, right? Like for all the different AppSec uh, pieces uh, or analysis that you're doing. Um, but I, I, I am interested from a vendor perspective or from a talk perspective, Jivan, um, like what is it that stood out to you? Did you have like a favorite that, or, you know, yeah, that, that was, um, that brought things to mind or spurred some, some additional research on your part? Yeah. Um, I, I also went to Fet Malin Kong, which was the mm. day before, um, uh, Global AppSec. Um, and this is the first one out and. It's hard to believe that like uh, 10 years ago, no one was really talking about threat modeling. And now um, yeah. a decade later, there's a con where I think there's got to be at least over 100 people, maybe 125 people were there um, and some of the best and brightest. And uh, the one that I really enjoyed there um, uh, was on how to add privacy as part of your threat modeling process. Um, so I've had a great um, a privacy manager that I work with uh, a few companies ago. Uh, Sweeney Williams. Um, he was uh, amazing. He really helped me think about uh, privacy in a different vein. Um, he was absolutely ridiculous as well. Um, we got ready for GDPR about a year before schedule. Um, he really, it, he he was able to convince the organization we had to move this way. GDPR came out. Uh, we had 80%, 90% of the stuff already done. I think a month before it actually came into uh, effect, we finished up the last of the things. But like, we weren't, weren't worried about it at all. So a lot of the learnings that I got from him has always made me passionate about uh, um, adding privacy as part of my threat modeling process. And then, um, yeah, just it was a great talk uh, uh, it, on itself uh, at Threat Modeling Con. So took a lot of screenshots and notes. Uh, so I'll be diving into that uh, over the next uh, quarter, just seeing how we can incorporate it uh, at Rippling as well. Cool. Cool. Um, well, good. I, yeah. I, go ahead. Sorry, Ken. Uh, no, no, sorry. I was, I was just curious if there are any new solutions that were of interest uh, to help in, in aiding with threat modeling. Yeah. Um, there were a ton of different talks um, and it was on all sorts of subjects uh, within threat modeling. So with respect to the privacy side, uh, uh, there, there wasn't. Um, I've seen, uh, I think it's called Lindrum. Um, adding that as part of a, a process. I've seen that a while ago, but I haven't incorporated it in my threat modeling process that way. Like I just think of uh, private concerns just in general, but making more systematic uh, made a lot of sense. But there are a lot of great talks in itself. Uh, like we had the non-keynote keynote where um, there are five really strong threat modelers, uh, Tanya, Seba, uh, a few others, uh, Robert, uh, uh, the, the few others that were speaking about it. It was nice just to hear them talk about um, when uh, they started threat modeling and how long they, that they've been in the industry. And then um, just how different approaches everyone's having, including AI uh, as a part of the threat modeling process. So I, I feel that there's going to be a lot of change in the near future uh, in itself, a lot more um, 
a lot more interesting techniques that we'll we'll end up using. Yeah, I agree with you. I think that that, and I'm, I don't know if this is what you meant. Um, you might have meant more threat modeling AI systems, but um, using AI to enhance. Uh, I, I was just at the conference. I was hearing people talk about some use cases for how they would use uh, AI to analyze uh, the the output of like different threat modeling collateral placed into like repos or whatever. And it sounded really cool and really interesting um, to give better context on the architecture and the posture and risk and whatnot, but um, of the application or applications. But it, so that seemed really cool, like a potential use case. But um, I don't, yeah, I'm trying to remember because th there was so many conversations, you know how it is with, with that conference. There's so many conversations you have. Definitely people mentioned threat modeling con I just, and like some cool outcomes. I just can't recall all of them. So I'm glad that you were actually there and you can recall those things. And yeah, and that was that was interesting too because it was like it was like Sunday was that right, and then I think Monday, Tuesday the conference, and then like Wednesday, Thursday maybe training. Um, so it was like a good long week out there for some folks. Uh, but yeah, I don't know. Well, so uh, moving forward, Seth, uh, we have a number. I think it's probably we should back up for a second and and discuss. Yeah. You know, sort of. So, Jivan, we you know you. We, you were on, I don't remember, I think maybe a few years ago, I don't remember exactly when, but uh, at that time you were at Segment slash Twilio, I, I'll just call it Twilio, um, and you had at that time come on to discuss sort of, if I remember anyways, like uh, self, how, how to teach developers uh, and people who are just generally not threat modeling security experts, how to threat model. And we had walked through some of your open source material, but also some of the like the idea of like, hey, um, the example you gave was here's a house and here's how you secure it and all of those things. Um, after that, you um, you moved up. As they, I say up, and I'm saying that with a little bit of a, with a smile on my face, a little bit of a smirk, because that's, we'll talk about that trap, but up and then uh, on. <laughs> onwards <laughs> to uh to rippling where you are now um so i figure it'd be really nice to unpack your journey since then um you had put out a post for even a more context for everybody listening jivon had put out a post recently kind of explaining here is why i chose to go from a director which is you know usually a very touted uh coveted sort of title right to uh I want to be an IC again. And that's not a very common thing that you see people do. Um, we talked about it. I've done this myself, uh, taking that step back. Um, but you just don't see it that often. So anyways, if you if, if we can start with how, how was that journey into the director role? And then once you were there, how, how, how it kind of went for you, good and the bad, uh, whatever you want to talk about and then sort of your transition out into uh, back to an IC role. Yeah. I think the last time I came on probably in 2020 ish uh, timeframe. Uh, so mm -hmm. a, a while ago um, uh, segment got acquired by Twilio after um, uh, being on the podcast. Um, and it, it was, it was, an you're welcome. No, I'm <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. Oh no. The Rippling's going to get acquired. <laughs> Um, but yeah, uh, it, it was an interesting time. We got acquired and then we integrate and then I eventually take over the product security function at uh, Twilio. And it was it was very different. Um, the Twilio is a very hard ecosystem to uh, work within, not because um, anything bad, like the people were fine, the technologies were fine, but um, they grew really rapidly uh, with the, a lot of acquisitions. So. I think they grew from like a thousand people to close to 10,000 people in the span of four or five years. And it was through a number of acquisitions and having a lot of those acquisitions in different ecosystems and environments, and then trying to roll out a ProdSec program that uh, hits every single place was very difficult. And the previous regime, um, they the way that they added stability was they created silos. Because uh, if you're growing from a thousand to 8,000, there's no stability. Uh, everything is chaotic. Uh, so they had these really strong silos and silos uh, also meant that there's no standardization within the ecosystem. So, so some of the first few things that uh, we did to help scale uh, security at uh, Twilio was 
we got to standardize something. So the first thing that we did was like standardizing on vulnerability tickets. Um, so there were four different type of vulnerability tickets that product security, uh, cloud security, uh, vulnerability management team uh, had a vulnerability ticket, our Secris team had it. And we're like, it's very confusing for the engineering teams to even know which one is priority. Like if you have a critical on the product security team and you have a blocker on the vulnerability management team, which one takes precedence? Uh, the terminologies were different, the SLAs were different. So we went in um, better trying to understand the problem, um, find solutions to the problem, and then implementing the uh, solution. So um, it's very similar to what we did at Segment. Uh, we called it democratized vulnerability management, where we ensured that the right risk owners actually own the risk. Um, so it doesn't make sense that security should own all of these vulnerability tickets. Why should a security engineer chase these individuals say, no, you have to fix it. You're past us away. Uh, we flipped the script where we said um, uh, if it was a P4, P5, um, engineering managers own it. P3s, uh, like mediums, went to directors. P2s went to VPs. And P1s went to either uh, senior vice presidents or GMs themselves. Um, and you own the risk. We don't own the risk. So if it goes over SLA, it's your responsibility to find out what's going on. And a lot of the times it happened that these P1s, these SVPs didn't even know that there are actual P1s in their ecosystem. The alerting never made it up to them. So mm -hmm. they couldn't even prioritize security. So this is the first time they actually saw P1s in their ecosystem. And they're like, what's going on? And they started, it was amazing that we hadn't fully rolled out the program, but we had rolled out the notifications. And these VPs and SVPs started commenting on these uh, tickets on their selves. They're like, what's happening here? Why isn't this fixed? Um, and then when we formally rolled out the program, um, the first quarter, I think we burnt down about 50% of the vulnerabilities. We added another 20%, but we burnt down 50% of the vulnerabilities. And the next quarter, there were no more P1s. And then the following quarter, we were trying to operationalize our tools so that we can uh, add more P1s into the ecosystem, which again, engineering burnt down half of those within the span of six weeks. So when you have a very simplified process with the right risk owners in charge, it really helps uh, quantify how much risk each of these BUs, each of these risk owners are holding, and it really gets them eager to actually reduce that risk within their org. So that was one of the first things that we did to actually um, like build that foundation and sort of scale that program in itself. That's it. It's an interesting problem because I, I mean, I, I've seen this actually you mentioning it here, but I've seen this in, in multiple other organizations as we come in and help and try and help build AppSec or just like vulnerability management in general is that security, um, I think mainly because there we have a lot of engineers on the security side, their instinct is to go to the engineers on the other side, right? Um, and the threat and the risk doesn't bubble up to necessarily the business owners that are involved in making the decisions on what actually gets what gets worked on, right? Like I have a company I'm working with right now that it's a very similar proposition that, hey, we've got like thousands of tickets that have been generated by different uh, different tools, different assessments, different, you know, things that have happened over the, the past year and a small, small percentage are being worked on because they end up in, you know, Jerahel or whatever it is, right? And the second that you actually start to involve, like it came down to this discussion of, well, who's actually defining what work's getting done? Oh, well, there's this project manager or this product manager over here that only talks to customers and they do feature requests. And like that gets, that's what defines what the engineers actually get to work on. And we're like, well, has anybody talked to them about security? No, not unless the, the, the customers have brought it up. And of course there was one big customer you know, that they had that came in and did a scan and was freaking out because there was security issues. And so it, it spotlighted it, but then all of a sudden it became like, well, why don't we just use the normal process? Exactly what you're talking to, right? Is um, security is no different, right? Like what, we shouldn't invent, reinvent the wheel. The engineers have already figured that out. They know how to quash bugs. Let's let them quash the bugs, right? Like, you know, talk to the right people, but, but the, the escalation from that engineering level up to the business or the VP level. Um, I, I, I'm just, you know, fascinated to hear that that's how, you know, other organizations are struggling with it because it is what I see. 
Um, yeah, I mean, Ken, yeah, Ken, did you see the same thing at GitHub? I don't know, like with engineering yeah. culture over there, how, how it happened. Well, and that's a good, I mean, I'll talk about that, but that's actually another point that I'm, I'm really interested to dig into with you, Jivon. Uh, but yeah, so at GitHub, we had the, we had the fundamentals program. Um, and uh, yeah, it's great. Um, basically, we had service owners and yeah, they're, sorry, executive level. Sorry about that. So we had some executive level. Uh, uh, this is really going to distract me. Let me move these guys real quick. I'm sorry, guys. <laughs> Because he's gonna lose his mind because he sees another dog outside. All right, but he's now I'm just all right. Now I'm just chasing my dogs on screen. All right, well we have power through this. This is become this is could become a different podcast, right? Yeah, <laughs> I forgot that, recording this for future uh, reference. So I've been on vacation, and so I didn't even. Uh, yeah, so I it's I'm a little out of I'm a little rusty, and I forgot that I need to close these doors and keep the dogs out when I do the podcast. So or meetings or whatever. So that's my bad. But uh, yeah, so we had a fundamentals program. There was a service catalog. There were service owners. Uh, you know, I think it was, I can't remember the cadence, but it's very regular cadence where if you were past, as you said, SLA, you would have to actually say like, why to an executive board? And that's not obviously ideal. And then there's got to be some justifications made and some time uh, that you think it's going to take to get that solved. And um, that brings me to the question that I wanted to kind of dig into, which is, and as much as you can actually say and, and all that, but I mean, for me, if I took over ProdSec as a director, it would be great if I was already, if I, if, you know, if, if it was sort of, I already have this like relationship or my team's already established this great culture and this great relationship and this trust with developers. That's actually the hardest, in my opinion, I think that's the hardest thing to do as part of the, the security team is just to build that rapport and, and all of that. But when you go in and you get acquired and it's a new, like you said, it's a harder ecosystem um, for a number of reasons, not necessarily that, uh, just, you know, a lot of different reasons. Um, but so, yeah, what's that like when you when you are placed into a position? Because, you know, just for clarity's sake, yes, GitHub got acquired by Microsoft, but we were they were mostly hands off in terms of engineering and all that. Right. So what is that like? I mean, to 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 come into a place with an existing culture and try and improve. Well, yeah, either keep it going or improve. Yeah, a uh, great question there. Um, so again, like so many acquisitions, uh, at least I uh, think about a dozen different acquisitions uh, all, all over different domains as well. Um, uh, Twilio is known as a, mostly as an SMS company, but we do email, they had uh, IoT, um, they did a lot of things within the telecom space as well. And so, um, we uh, we sort of uh, the relationship with engineering went twofold. Um, one is obviously we had our security engineering function where CloudSec, ProdSec was really working closely hand in hand with uh, engineering themselves. But we also had a BISO org, uh, business unit information security officers, that really worked closely with the engineering leadership uh, in itself. And that BISO org really helped us uh, accelerate uh, the pace of uh, anything that we're rolling out uh, in general because. They work with the VPs and SVPs and say, hey, um, we're going to be implementing this particular change in your ecosystem. Be ready for it. Or um, we're actually we're worried about this particular vulnerability. We want you to make sure that uh, we have eyes on it and we um, have an internal SLA of two weeks to actually remediate it in our ecosystem. So they had these pre-existing relationships already at the very senior uh, leadership level. Whereas uh, the ProdSec team that uh, like, so part of segment, we only had a small footprint in segment. There's a few of us, um, but we already on the Twilio side, already had existing relationships. So it was really fostering those relationships and making sure that we continue to double down on particular ones. So our platform engineering team, they were responsible for CICD, GitHub, rolling out all of these uh, different infrastructure related, related problems. We want to double down on it because they're building the pay path. We want to make sure that we're really securing that pay path. In other sort of relationships, we couldn't get to it because uh, 2022, 2022 was the year of the great resignation and a lot of folks uh, left uh, just in general. So um, some of those relationships, unfortunately, we couldn't really deal with because either security engineers were leaving or uh, engineers were leaving. So uh, it, it was just a challenging time. And we started really building those uh, relationships again in 2023 
with uh, that vulnerability management program when we were rolling it out and working closely with developers to actually burn down risk in itself. So as uh, engineers started to reach out and say, hey, these are assigned to us, we want to actually address them, how can we do it? We, we had a lot of office hours and we also had uh, a lot of touch points with engineers so that we can help them uh, figure out how they actually can uh, remediate some of these issues themselves. So uh, twofold, BSOs, as well as uh, making sure that we continued on some of those relationships. Um, in terms of office hours, did, did you, I, sorry, I had to pin, sorry to, to hone in on that. Cause yes, that that's, so that, that makes a lot of sense. What you're, what you're saying where you're, you're making yourself self available and you're kind of pushing these things forward and then just being there though. It's, a, it's not like you're just saying, Hey, go do these things and then figure it out. You're actually like, yeah, building that, building that rapport through actual assistance and offering, you know, to, to help. So I, I, I don't mean to, 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 you know, focus on this too much, but we, I had the hardest time um, getting people to show up to office hours <laughs> when, whenever we'd hold them. And I know it's, you know, it's no, it's people are busy. I, I totally, I totally get that, but I never felt like we got a great engagement. I don't know if you had a secret there for no, getting good engagement also had office hours. We also had challenges there as well. Um, so uh, I'm guessing similarly to us uh, at uh, Twilio, there's several thousand engineers and people just don't know what's going on. So one of the things that was really difficult, especially even with the democratized vulnerability management program that we rolled out, people had to know how to use the actual system. So we had office hours, we had uh, email comms, Slack comms, um, and none of it really worked uh, just in general. Like people still were confused about it. And only when we switched to actually speaking at every single engineering all hands. So there's like, 19 different BUs. We went to every single one of them. People that everyone was there. And we talked about it for five, seven minutes. And that's when it started slowly uh, um, actually uh, sinking in onto the engineering org. So what we learned is that having, yeah, scaling it out at a very, very large org, you have to do, I think in marketing, you have to like have like eight different touch points before people mm -hmm. really sort of like get what you're uh, trying to do. And we did that uh, in various forms as well. No one reads emails. That's what we've learned. <laughs> no one reads emails. Slack was not bad. Um, it was really the all hands that really worked for us. And we use that, we leverage that to sort of roll out some of these larger initiatives. Nice. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Because I, I was curious, you know, like it, that's always a tough thing is to get people to come to you. But what you're saying is really, you, you you made yourself available. You helped out with what was needed for the work, I, discrete work items, but but also you just made sure that you were in front of where they live or, or went where they live and, you know, are hanging out. And uh, obviously on engineering all hands, most people are going to be, if they're not there at the time, they're going to hopefully watch it later. So that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah. So I, I don't know, Seth, I, I, I'm curious to, to delve into yeah. now. Now you're a director. Yep, yep. And you feel like you've made some progress. Where do you? Where do you? What happens next? You know, what's yeah. sort of your your life? Yeah, and you're just yeah. yeah. So as a director, I really love the role where I feel um, I had. Uh, there's two parts of being a director. You have control and you have power. Um, so um, you have the control over your size of org, um, and you're able to set the tone, set the roadmap, uh, North Star, and. and get people to buy into your vision and row in that same direction. But you also have the control where you are able to say, no, we have to really focus on this and get people to actually work on it. So the higher you go in org, the more power you have, but less control that you have. So as a VP or SVP, you have a lot of power, but you don't have the control of the day-to-days what actually folks work on. So. I've always felt that the level uh, director was really great. Um, I, I get to have both uh, power and control. Um, I really enjoyed um, mentoring individuals on my team, seeing people grow, um, throw challenging problems with them, teaming up with them. But one of the things that I really missed was being really hands-on and being technical. Um, I felt that I was getting really decoupled from those technical decisions because um, the individuals on my team, they're really embedded into the problem themselves. Um, they will bounce ideas off of me. I can only help them at a very high, high level. But I was really missing that uh, that technical capability, really diving deep into a problem and solving a problem uh, 
as best as I can uh, for that. So um, I, I felt that uh, I spent uh, like the span of Segment and Twilio, I was near, there for nearly four years. Um, I did my time. Um, I felt that I really helped uh, Twilio get to where it was. They were moving extremely fast uh, as an org, bearing down a sizable amount of risk. Um, the managers on my team, I felt that they were um, ready to take on more responsibilities. And I didn't want it to be someone that's blocking them from growing that way as well. Um, with my departure, I do hope that they are able to take on more and more of my responsibilities and really be able to grow into senior managers and directors themselves uh, at some point. So um, I felt that maybe it's the time for me to go back to an IC role uh, and just really dive deep into problems and solve hard problems. And the type of problems that I want to solve aren't just like straight technical problems. Uh, like those I think are easier to solve. I want to have problems that are both technical and cultural in nature. Like how do I change mm -hmm. the culture and fix this uh, technical problem at that same time uh, in itself? And Rippling had a number of those really, really difficult problems uh, for me to uh, sink my teeth into. I will agree with that. I think at a certain point, and sorry, Seth, I, I'll, I'll be quiet after this, but I, I agree with the fact that like, because when you talk about what's interesting, like after a while, you get to a point where, and this isn't like to sound oh, amazing or, you know, hu have hubris or whatever. It, it's just like after a while, you kind of do get to the point where you've solved so many problems throughout your career that you're pretty confident you can always solve a problem, uh, meaning just a straight computer technical kind of issue, programming, whatever it might be, you can figure it out. But uh it's when you involve people and I've, I, that's, that's the one that's always been very tough for me is, is the human aspect for like technical stuff. Sure. Black and white binary, whatever. Maybe you have some creative solutions you put in there, but people is all people boggle my mind still with you. It's they're unpredictable and they change and everybody's got hidden sort of, um, parts of themselves that they don't yeah, everybody always hear this thing of like, bring your true self to work, but nobody does that. Nobody brings their entire <laughs> self to work. Not that I've ever met. Um, or I'm very skeptical that anyone, yeah, anybody does. Yeah. So I don't know. I, anyways, I don't really have much else to add other than I agree with you. That's a really, that's always been a, a more interesting and, and definitely more difficult and complex problem to solve. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I feel like it always goes back to, I, it is still vulnerability management, right, from a security perspective that we're looking at. But the the technical side, like there's always going to be new solutions that are that can te technically quash a problem, right? Like, um, and but the people side of it is so dependent on who you have in an organization, what their motivations are. Every single person has a different motivation. Um, when you scale, when you where you're talking a team of five people versus five hundred the scale changes what you can actually do and what those motivations are, the complexity. So the process, what may work with five or even a hundred people may not work with 500, um, but it could, depending on the, the organization and the people itself and every place that you go is going to be slightly different because people are different um, and the makeup of that organization is going to be different. So applying the technical the technical controls, even from a process perspective, right? Like an information security um, policy is going to be different for a GE versus a, you know, a Google versus a small startup. Um, and rightfully so it should be, uh, but you're all still trying to save, to solve the same problem. I, yeah. I, I don't know where I'm going with this, but I, I'm, I'm with you on it as far as the complexity goes, because every organization that I walk into, it feels like the, the players are the same yet different, right? The roles may be the same, um, but figuring out what speaks to one organization versus another is so wildly different that they could not be like even playing in the same pay, place or the same, uh, the same vertical, uh, the approach has to be complete completely different right and i mean jivon are you finding that from like your switch from twilio and segment into rivian or to rippling yeah uh it, it's been it's been very interesting like uh so you're going from a multi-acquisition ecosystem with a bunch of different technical stacks to a monolith uh and the concept that parker our ceo has is that 
we're going to build a lot more than we buy. So we have like, I'd say many startups within our startup uh, in itself. Uh, so um, it, it's definitely very, very different, complicated. Um, there are a lot of uh, challenges security wise. They scaled engineering very quickly. They're catching up on the security side now as well. So definitely different problems there. And like, for folks that are thinking about making that switch, like you don't lose the fun side of uh, the directorship where you, like for me, what I really enjoyed was that mentorship piece. I still have that at Rippling. Like you know, there are a lot of folks uh, internally that need that mentorship uh, capabilities. And um, I do want them to be out talking about the problems that they're solving, building up their brands. Uh, I enjoyed that at Twilio. I'm enjoying that at uh, Rippling as well. I just don't have to write performance reviews now. <laughs> well, I can tell you, I've heard nothing but good feedback from everybody that's ever worked for you. And uh, so you've, you've done a successful job, I think, with mentorship and certainly cultivated some really strong relationships. So, uh, you know, you definitely showed a lot of success there. But on the flip side of that, one thing that we did talk about was when you mentor people and you are responsible for a lot of people, you spend a lot of time on meetings. And, yeah. and it's not just that, too. It's like you you have to be community and especially with remote companies. Right. Like you have to kind of you're not in an office where you can just swing by people and they, you know, whatever. Um, I don't know. You just have to really kind of be there for some of those synchronous meetings where you know, you might prefer to be, okay, I prefer to be asynchronous, but, you know, it's, I, I think we, we, were t we were sharing, like, I think you said maybe between 20 to 30 hours on Zooms, and I know for me, it was it was 30 plus easily, almost every hour of work was, and that's, you know, that was something I constantly was fighting, but um, yeah, so. Yeah, a minimum. Your time's 20, constrained, right? Yeah, yeah, a minimum it was 25 hours um, on Zooms, and like, um, I, I never knew what time I'd have lunch uh, on a given day. Mm -hmm. um, like, and my, I would be very um, grateful whenever someone would cancel a meeting because I can squeeze in time to work or I can find time to eat. Um, and then you have your life as well. Like, uh, so there'd be, I'd start really early in the morning um, and try to get through as much work as I can before a lot of the folks got on. Um, sat through a bunch of meetings. Um, my kids would come home. I'd take them to their activities, come home in the evening, wrap up whatever I missed uh, during the day, and then it's back to it uh, the next day. So it, it is quite challenging and stressful. And um, the worst part of it is like I keep, uh, I felt like sometimes I was a hypocrite. Like uh, I've been telling folks that no, you have to have a strong work life balance. And it's really hard to manage a strong work life balance when you're, you have large orgs and you want to do the best for every single individual. Like, I don't want to fail any one of my team. Like, uh, I, I do mm -hmm. want to make them stronger and I want to be able to be there for them as well. I, I And I would actually even argue that it's not just large organizations, right? Like at a startup or in like, you know, small orgs where there isn't like the margins aren't as huge, right? Like it's once you move into that leadership role, the pressure just amps up. Um, so being able to perform on a daily basis to get everything done that needs to. And then when, hey, when when your team doesn't or they don't make a deadline or whatever it is, you're the one that's accountable for that. Um, you have a tendency to dive in to make up that, you know, for that gap or whatever it is, because I, I know I mean, personally, I feel it as far as like, oh, if my team can't do it, then it means that I failed them and giving them the time, giving them the resources. So it's now on me to actually complete that, right? Like it's it's working in a, like any organization as a team trying to accomplish a task, whether it be large or small, being in that leadership role just brings with it a number of pressures that you don't necessarily realize when you start your career or when you're an, an ICE. But I also think having that perspective and stepping back into it, like both of you have done over the years, gives you an appreciation for, what that cover looks like and and actually taking the time out to hey it, it's nice to be able to go actually see my kids do something um or you know provide for the families in another way so i mean it gives you that appreciation but it also like yeah i i, I don't know how to to uh, 
to kind of rectify the two of those things, right? Like, because I, you know, I feel that pull at times, right? Like running my own thing now as well as, oh man, like it'd be nice to go back to being like a single person shop where it's only me that I'm responsible for, right? Like, or um, just because the pressure is less and I spend less time on meetings. Um, and I, I don't know, I like one of the things that I, I did want to mention after we talked about uh, meetings previously, right? Like any of you, any of us that are, naturally a little more introverted and i know we don't necessarily put that off having given that we have a podcast and everything like that but uh you know the fact that you know when you have meetings that are on your calendar right like and, and this is what i said pre you know pre-show you know i have two or three meetings in the afternoon and i allow that to ruin my day because i'm so worried about the, what those meetings look like and you know whether it's sales whether it's presenting results or whatever it is I don't get the work done as I need to because, you know, I'm so focused on, okay, how am I going to perform in the meeting, in the podcast, in, in whatever else it is. And so having, you know, learning to cope with that is also a challenge. I, and, and so my question to you, Jeevan, like, how do you do that? How do you cope with that? Yeah. Uh, the same thing happened at Global AppSec. Like uh, uh -huh. you're meeting so many people and as introverts, like you only have a certain amount of reserve before you like you're really running on fumes. So, both uh, for work, I'd have five, six, seven hours of meetings, um, and I'd had to decompress uh, at the end of the day. Um, like um, I, my kids are running upstairs uh, doing their thing, but I would have to decompress and sort of fill up my reserve so I can go meet them, be the dad I'm supposed to be uh, for mm -hmm. them as well. And same with the global appsec where. I was meeting a ton of new people, I'd have to take breaks. I'd literally have to go off the floor, find a quiet place just to decompress. Uh, fortunately, my hotel was a two minute walk from the conference. So uh, I'd spend a half an hour there just to um, recharge and then come back to the conference itself and start meeting and chatting and uh, providing my thoughts to folks themselves. And and I want to I, I like I want I want to highlight that Jivan the 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 ability or the pre-planning that goes into, hey, I'm going to buy, I, I'm going to pay the little bit extra to stay on site at the conference. So I do have a space to go back to, right? I like, you know, I, I think people that listen to the podcast know that, you know, I spend a lot of time in Vegas during the DEF CON, you know, the black hat DEF CON period. And that, that is the one thing, like, there's a few times that we've had, like, um, we've got like an Airbnb that's off site, right? but it's like a half hour to get back and forth or longer to get to it. And those days and those weeks are so incredibly long because I think even as someone that enjoys talking to people, right? Like everyone has that, that little introvert or that whatever, you know, reserve that's in them at, a, at some point they need to take time for themselves. Um, and so planning that out, making sure that you have that ability is actually going to make you more successful at a conference rather than less. Um, so I, I just wanted to highlight that because it, it I mean, it's a, it's a nugget that's taken me a long time to learn personally. Um, and I would hope it would help other people out there. Uh, the other thing that I have to do at conferences, being an introvert, I have to warm up to talk to people as well. Like, uh, I, I have to, I'll start talking to friends first and be able to talk to them normally. Then I talk to strangers and be able to pick their minds and stuff like that. I can't, I've been to situations where like uh, maybe I'm starstruck with some security person and I try to get my words out and they're all jumbled. And I'm like, Jeevan, why did you, like you're embarrassing yourself in front of everyone. <laughs> like, stop no, at, dude, when you're talking about at night decomp or later, yeah, at night decompressing all that, I'm like, well, for me, that's just an hour of me going back through all the stupid things I said and being like, oh God, I... <laughs> I said this, I said that, because I, I especially, I don't know if I've even ever talked about this on the podcast, but I actually, uh, I've gotten better with age, but with, uh, like, if I'm tired, this stuff happens, I tend to say things backwards and all mixed up, and, and um, I have to be very careful about what's coming out of my mouth, because it's very easy for me to just, bleh, you know, say the wrong thing and not even realize it. Anyways, I'm saying all that because, yeah, like, that hour of decompression really just becomes, like, an hour of torture fest of, like, well, I'm dumb. So, you know, what? <laughs> yeah. Anyways, um, that should make a good sound bite for the uh, podcast. Uh, anyways. We'll Aaron flag so, yeah. There you go. Yeah. yeah, there you go. So, like, you're at this point where you are, you know, you're, in, you're into, you're, you're off kilter with work-life balance. You're feeling 
probably more and more exhausted, I would assume. I, you know, it, like like we said, you, every day you kind of have to spend that time decompressing so you can be a essentially a normal functioning, you know, healthy human being. Um, which, uh, yeah, again, I think we all relate to that. Um, so then how long, you know, does this kind of go on before you start thinking, okay, maybe this isn't like for me, you know, at least not right now. Yeah. I, I don't think it sort of went that way. Like, um, I, I got to give a lot of credit to my team. They energized me at Twilio. Um, they're such great individuals and, um, I hired a lot of folks just because they had so much empathy and they really cared about the team and strengthening the team and that I just feed off of that. And I really enjoyed that. And um, while like I, my work-life balance was out of whack, I, I still enjoyed all the stuff that I did at Twilio. Um, but um, I felt that I needed a change uh, just in general. It's been three, four years. I'm solving that same sort of problems and challenges. And I needed new problems and challenges to uh, sort of solve. So um, uh, during the summer, um, I started chatting with just companies just to see like, what type of problems do I actually want to solve now? Um, and in the midst of it was chatting with uh, some of the folks that I knew um, uh, working at Segment with, and they're, they're at Rippling. Um, and they mentioned that they had a IC role if I'm interested in. I wasn't sure initially, if I'm being honest, like, uh, like I had both the product security and cloud security reporting into me at uh, Twilio. And it's a per fairly large size org in itself. Will I have this sort of opportunity to run this size team? Um, uh, like going back to an IC, what does my career path and trajectory look like as well? So I had to talk through a lot of different ways and seeing what exactly, but um, ultimately like uh, the opportunity looked great just because I got to work with uh, a lot of familiar faces uh, at Segment again. Um, thing, folks that really challenged me and like I felt that um, uh, I had my greatest amount of initial growth at Segment and Twilio gave me a lot more growth uh, uh, in a different way. Um, I felt like coming back to Rippling and them being on this hyper growth path where um, I think they like, like every company is laying folks off and Rippling is just still hiring people like crazy. It'd be, it'd be interesting to see like all the lessons that I've learned over my decade and on the security side, can I implement it really quickly at a place where they're moving really, really fast? So that sort of problem sounded interesting. Then they talked a lot about the internal challenges that they're having uh, in itself, like uh, people using certain tools or methodologies that are probably bad practices uh, in general. How do I convince uh, 2,400 people to stop doing it this way and let's do it a different way? So I'm like, okay. Um, it was really, really difficult uh, at, at Twilio to do that. Let's see um, if I can do it for different challenges, different problems at Rolling. So, yeah, like uh, ultimately, I like I, I love Twilio, and I know it was chaotic uh, with the work-life balance, but I really enjoyed that. But I also so sort of want to solve new and interesting problems as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're there for a while. I mean, in the tech industry, that's a long time, right? That's not a short amount of time um, in our in our field, especially. So it's not, you know, like twenty eight years. Stretch. Dog years. <laughs> What's that? <laughs> like twenty eight years in dog years. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, especially in that role, that's a really tough. I mean, to you know, I'll just say from from my perspective, it was the same thing. It was like GitHub will always hold a special place in my heart. It, it, the people will. The company will, of course, like, it, of course it does. But yeah, it was sort of like, uh, it was uh, kind of one of those situations where, same as you, enjoyed mentoring people, enjoyed the people the most, um, but it just got to be a bit much after a while. And there were new challenges to solve um, outside of the, the ones I was dealing with and accustomed to day to day. So I can completely relate to where, you know, Obviously, I didn't go to the IC role in that, but before, you know, when Seth and I worked together and we were executives and, you know, that was uh, on paper, people don't realize like it was probably like seven and a half years of my life, at least dedicated to to that company. And then leaving there as a CTO and being like, I don't want to do that stuff. I want to be that like I like code and that's what I want to do. And going to that IC role. So I, I will say I really 
a hundred percent to 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 what you're saying because it's like, I mean, actually Neil Matatal, who has been on the podcast as a supporter and you know is is a frequent person on um, contributor on the, the the Slack channel. He was the one I reached out to. and was like, "Hey, man, do you think it's okay?" I, I was telling you, Jivon, this, but yeah, that's what happened. Is like, I reached out to him. and was like, "Do you think it would be weird if you know I was a CTO or whatever?" And but like, I just want to go back to being an IC and reviewing code and like finding vulnerabilities and helping you get fixed and stuff like that. You know, and he's like, "No, man, like definitely apply." You know, we'll, we'll chat, and so I went through the whole process and it worked out. And I'm glad that he was you know, so like responsive and accommodating and all that stuff. Cause that's a really, I guess what I'm trying to say is I don't think people realize like how scary that looks yeah. externally because then people are like, Oh, you you went to this and now you're like going, you know, did you fail? It's like, no, like I have different priorities in my life at any given time or different things I'm interested in. Like I'm the kind of person seems, seems the same as you. Who's just like, well, fuck it. This makes me happy. This is what I'm going to go do. Yeah. You know? I, I, I agree. Like, I was scared as well, like uh, going from a role with a, a lot of uh, um, uh, status to an IC role. And I had to talk to a lot of people and I, like I had to ask my wife, am I crazy to want to uh, do this? Uh, and like what I realized is I don't have to climb the corporate ladder. That's not what's meant for me. Like, uh, and I, I want to do what I want to enjoy uh, in itself. So. If you do, you don't have to have that structured, um, and, and people do, like so many people have asked, like, why, why did you do this? Um, you're doing so well at Twilio. Yes, I, I definitely was doing well, but like at this point in my life, I want to solve something else. I want to solve different problems. And if it's as an IC, I'm, I'm, yeah, I, I don't, I don't want to, I never want to follow a given career path. I want to follow what's right for me at any given point in itself. So. Um, I, I don't expect myself to uh, be a VP or a CISO anytime soon. Um, I, I don't think I have that type of interest. Uh, like the problems I solve um, are very different. I want to solve security engineering problems. Um, like yeah. I don't want to solve political problems. I don't want to solve uh, like <laughs> too many human problems. I love working with human and teaching them growth, but like it's hard um, seeing people when like you have to manage someone out of the organization or. Mm -hmm. them running into visa issues and you can't do anything about it like uh, those are other hard problems that I, like i hate running into so uh, definitely at this point in my career i just want to solve technical problems and do it well but yeah and and, and, and enjoy your life point, while you're doing it yeah 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 i i mean i i think it needs to be normalized right like in the in the business world specifically um you know there's always been this idea of company men, right? Like you start at the bottom and you work your way up and eventually you're a VP or a, you know, a, you know, take over the company after you started in the mailroom, right? Like, you know, we have a tendency to, you know, to glamorize that, that story, but most people don't have that sort of path, right? Like there's very much a, you know, even, you know, mid-career, late career, like we discover new passions, we discover new problems that we want to solve and that's okay, right? Like taking the experience that we have and rolling into, hey, you know, guess what? Yeah, I, I think I do want to manage another team and we want to build and do this thing. Or guess what? Yeah, like that forming that new team sounds great, but I'm just going to be a, com a contributor there and do, you know, and give you expertise in a different way. Um, it's not all about, I guess, like moving up in an organization as it is like personal growth, I guess, yes. is, is, is more of what I, I look at, right? Like, am I still learning? Am I still engaged? Am I still interested in what I'm doing? Because if I'm not, why, or if we're not, why are we doing it? Yeah, I really like that. I, I want to move up in my pro personal growth ladder uh, instead of the mm -hmm. career ladder uh, in itself. Yeah, that, that's a great way of putting that, uh, Seth. Yeah. Also, man, like all, I, I would, I would argue all of us have put in a lot of work to like uh, build that, that, you know, all those skills and all those experiences that essentially make, make you, 
marketable and and give you this is my point the freedom to choose what you want to do what's the point of going through all i mean i did a lot of shit jobs in my life all right i've done all that the, the crap stuff work for psychos work too long of hours i've done all that stuff i'm not saying that like i just do whatever makes me happy all the time no 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 but once i got to a point where i could absolutely make those decisions for myself and had the financial freedom uh yeah i'm not going to choose to like live in or work in and and this is me not saying any of this stuff was was bad at GitHub or anything like that. It, like like you, a lot of love for them. Just if it's not the thing that's making me like the most, and the farther I get away from that person who's living the life they want to live, the worse my personal life for sure gets, and the worse my professional life, or at least my efficiency or my perceived ability to perform becomes. So it's it's a it's it's not just a a fluffy, like, this is a good thing. Like, you know, you should just do whatever makes you happy. It's like, no, there's a pragmatic part of this, which is like, yeah, it sucks. And it doesn't end up well if you just constantly slog through stuff you don't like forever. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is we can choose to go back. Like we don't lose those skills. They're they're still with us. Uh, So I'm using them in different ways uh, here at Rippling, like the mentorship side of things. And now I actually have brain space to actually think about how do I solve these technical challenges. Whereas as a director, I didn't have that time. The five minutes here and there um, and really relying on my team to do the deep dives. But now I can think, I can think and I can breathe and I can do things. So I do have those capabilities. Uh, LinkedIn doesn't think about it uh, that way. LinkedIn, I still, I get all the IC engineering roles uh, sent it over to yeah. me. The algorithm hasn't caught up uh, to that. But, <laughs> but uh, I do, I still have the, those skills. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I, I mean, you know, the, the, I still get, I still get some stuff from LinkedIn for, you know, like physical security guard things. So like, you know, take that, take it all with a grain of salt. Right. <laughs> well, Chivon, we have been going for an hour and I don't feel like we've covered anywhere near, you know, everything that we wanted to, but um, I do want to be cognizant of your time. We're so appreciative for you to come on, to give us that hour to talk through these things. Like it's been a fascinating conversation from my perspective. Um, is there anything that you would like to leave the listeners with before, you know, or places they can meet you before we close it up today? Yeah. Uh, a few things. Um, one is, Again, uh, you don't have to have that uh, corporate ladder career path. Do what you enjoy, do what you're really passionate about and really focus on that uh, career growth, uh, your personal growth uh, in itself. Um, uh, We're really tight with OWASP. So we run the OWASP Vancouver chapter. If you are ever out in Vancouver and wanna catch uh, um, a meeting um, like uh, on Thursday, we're really looking forward to, we have ads Dawson um, one of the authors for the OWASP top 10 for LLM. He's going to be speaking uh, uh, to us. Yeah, that's going to be, that's going to be a fantastic one. We're really yeah, excited about that. Yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, on top of it, <laughs> yeah. Um, we also have Application Security Pacific Northwest, uh, another OWASP sanctioned event where the four um, Pacific Northwest uh, chapters, so Vancouver, Victoria, Seattle, and Portland, we get together and we put on a conference. So last year, or I guess in 2023, we put it on in Portland. Uh, next year, it's going to be in Vancouver. So uh, yeah, a lot of interest. Uh, we're thinking about all these crazy fun events that we can do, potentially hackers on a boat where we'll go uh, go on the harbor side for, uh, or we go hiking. So we're sort of mapping all that sort of stuff out uh, right now. So stay tuned for more details on that. The CFP should be opening up pretty soon for that. Cool. Yeah. Keep it, keep us in the, in the loop. Cause I, I, you know, if you're going to be doing training, I know Ken and I would be interested yeah. in, you know, um, or I, like even the CFP we'll watch out for it. Cause uh, you know, I would love to get back up to Vancouver as it is. So, right. Like that's not a bad flight for me. So we'll be talking for sure. Right. 100%. 100%. Sweet. Um, well, good. Uh, Ken, any last minute thoughts before we um, call it for today? No, uh, just putting in the link to uh, the uh, the conference. But yeah, no, thank you, Jibon. Uh, and I feel like you're you're a person I could always talk to forever. So uh, thanks for for coming on again and chatting. And um, I just really appreciate yeah. you giving us your time. Yeah, and if there's anyone that's concerned about their career growth or uh, trajectory, 
hit me up on LinkedIn. I don't mind talking about my experiences and the decision and going deeper into the decisions and why I felt it was right. So um, we're a community. Uh, let's We don't have to um, just make uh, decisions in the dark. Feel free to reach out to us and we can dive deeper into it. Great. Perfect. Well, thanks so much. Thanks everyone today for listening. Um, I'm sure we'll have Jeevan back in, uh, back on, you know, maybe in three or four years, hopefully sooner than that. Right. We'll, we'll, we'll discuss, we'll, we'll make it a more regular cadence because it's been a good, it's been a great conversation. Um, yeah. If you haven't joined our Slack channel, um, follow us on X slash Twitter and otherwise we'll see everyone next week. Thanks everyone. Thank you.